Well, before I get into my sermon, too, uh, I really need to express on behalf of Diane and I our great appreciation for all the cards and letters we received last week uh, regarding Pastor Appreciation Sunday. It was very encouraging for us to be able to read through uh, all the notes you wrote as uh, we finally got to our dinner last Sunday afternoon, and uh, it just means a lot to us. We're also very appreciative of the, the practical gifts, you, or actually two gifts. Uh, the first one, extremely practical, which many of you will probably use at some point. Uh, in 1988, the first church I was pastoring at gave us a gift. It was our couch and love seat. Well, in 23 years, with innumerable Bible studies and meetings and counseling and hosting, um, some of you are aware that it's pretty shot. Uh, even though I rebuilt the seats some years ago so you can actually still sit on it, I don't know how to do the backs, and so you sit on it, and then you just kind of collapse backward. And that's why we use all those pillows that we're stuffing behind people. Um, so your practical gifts is going to enable us to try and find something to replace those, and uh, we hope to be able to let you enjoy them at some point, too, uh, since we do have a lot of folks over at the house. But thank you very much. And for whoever bought me the NEAT scanner, NEAT is the name of the scanner, Okay, it's not just a, wow, it's cool, groovy scanner or something. It's, it's the name of the scanner is called NEAT. Um, I haven't quite figured out how to use it, but I'm working on it. I do suspect, I don't know who gave it to me, but it was somebody who's been in my office, and they think the piles of paper are atrocious. Um, I have been trained well. John Halpin and I have learned that piles of paper are fine as long as no one moves your piles. Right? Okay. <laughs> uh, if I had found out, you'd get one back. <laughs> but I do appreciate your, your thoughtfulness. I, I think I have looked through it, and I think it will help. I just have to get it set up. I also want to thank you last week for your comments uh, and notes about the message last week. Back in 2001, I preached a series of 12 messages dealing with uh, successful Christian living. And last week, I was really compelled to try and figure out how to put those basic principles into one sermon, which is what I did last week. And in regards to the comments I received, I, I believe I was able to do so. Remember, there were the five points. You exist to glorify the Creator. You are to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, not someone else. Feed yourself from God's Word. Understand God's priorities for your life and set your goals accordingly and actively use your spiritual gifts. I put that together on a bookmark. We put one of those in all the bulletins. There's a lot of extra ones over on the back table. If you'd like some more, keep in the bookmark, post in your refrigerator, whatever you need to help remind you that this is really where we need to go. These are the things that should be directing our, our thinking if we're going to live the Christian life successfully. Um, so I hope those will be helpful to you. Today, I want us to turn our attention to the subject of the family, uh, we're going to be end up eventually dealing with the topics of marriage, the role of the husband, the role of the wife, uh, parenting, children, relatives, and leaving a legacy. And in my original schedule, this was going to be one sermon. It's not. Um, I am finding that as you get into Proverbs, that um, it gets deeper the more you think about it, and that's the case this morning. As you consider what a proverb says, it will generate questions. Those gen questions generate answers, which generate more questions, and it just drives you deeper and deeper 
and digging out what is really there. And this morning, it really started with Proverbs 18.22. And Proverbs 18.22, and you can flip over in your Bible, because that's going to be our proverb of the day, or of the week. Um, It actually, I think, is about the only proverb we're going to deal with this morning. But it set off a series of questions that drove me into having to deal with foundational issues. It says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now, a series of questions started with that. First of all, the word for wife here is uh, isha, which is this the feminine form for man and is also translated as woman. So there's also going to be translated, he who finds a woman finds a good thing. So which is it? Is it wife or is it woman? And then, why is that a good thing? Why does that obtain favor from the Lord? And as I started tracing it down, you look at the context, and you find that Proverbs is definitely referring to a wife, not just a woman, because Proverbs has lots of things to say about finding women who do not bring favor from the Lord. They bring a curse. Okay? So it's not just finding any woman, it's finding a wife. That means it goes back to marriage. And if we're talking about marriage, then we have a foundation that must be understood correctly if we're going to understand anything else that Proverbs has to say about the family. Because marriage is the foundation of the family. When you and your spouse got married, you became a family, a new independent family separated from your mom and dad. When you had children, you simply expanded the size of your family. But your family started when you two got married. So we must understand marriage, if we're going to understand the family, we must understand these things before we begin to look at Proverbs and why there's so much wisdom in what it says regarding the family. So we're going to, this morning, look at the institution of marriage. Now, we need to take some time to look at this also for another reason. A couple generations ago, those questions as I was thinking about Proverbs 18.22 probably wouldn't even been generated. It would have been correctly assumed certain things about it. But we do not live in that society anymore. We live in a society where the immoral thoughts of a secular uh, society, they they become dominant. Let me give you some very sad statistics. Now, they're probably a little worse because my information is really from 2008. Over 40% of children born in the United States are now born to single mothers. Think about that. 40, over 40%. In some subsets, some communities, it's over 70%. We are fast approaching the point where there are fewer people living as married couples than living in some form of immorality, either as promiscuous singles or a couple shacked up in temporary relationships. Even among those who are professing Christians, there's a very high degree of sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage. There is now even confusion about the definition of marriage due to politicians courting the votes of certain constituents and seeking to gain funding from the same. And so they're trying to play God and give official approval to sin. This includes our own state, our own New York State Senator, Steve Saland. You remember that name when it comes up for a vote. Make sure that's not one you will vote for. 
because he was one of the key swing votes to change the definition of New York that allows sodomites and lesbians to be officially married in our state. You keep that in mind. Our God is a very patient God. But I can only describe that kind of action by our state legislators as evil. And a governor who would sign it as evil. We don't seem to like that word anymore, but it's the fitting word. It's directly contrary to all that God says about holiness and righteousness and what marriage is. It is not an expansion of rights for certain people. It is a direct attack on the institution of marriage itself. We need to understand that. But our God is patient. He is long-suffering. But a society cannot continue to be defined against God and his commands without judgment coming upon us. Those of you who are familiar with Romans 1 and the descent into sin recognize that we are already under God's judgment. For the judgment of God comes against us in increased sin. It's a going downward into more and more debauchery. And that's where we are as a society. His hand is already pulled back, and the nation is reaping the consequences of its sin, and it is getting worse. And the rot in government is only a reflection of our society, for we vote these people into office. And the stench of it rises to heaven. When you pray for our nation, pray for mercy, because that's what we need. We need his hand of mercy upon us. Pray as Abraham did when the Lord came to him and revealed he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, be merciful for the sake of the righteous remnant. That's about all we have left to continue to petition him for our nation, isn't it? Now, because of this moral confusion in our society, it is imperative we go back to understand God's establishment and purpose for the family before we can hope to understand how to apply the various Proverbs. So turn over to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Now, I pointed out last week that we are created beings who exist to glorify our creator. That's the reason you exist. It is the purpose of man. The same is true when it comes to the family. It is the creation of God, not of man. It's not something the government gets to define. It is the creation of God. He is the one that has established it. It has a purpose in God's glory, not man's success, pleasure, or happiness. Though those things will be true, if you are following God's plan, you will have success and pleasure and happiness, and you will glorify God. Now, God created the heavens and the earth, separated the light from the darkness on the first day of creation. He separated the waters above from the waters below on the second day. On the third day, he gathered the waters below together and he let the dry land appear and then he created the plants. 
On the fourth day, God created the sun, the moon, the stars, and separated the day and night and established them to be for signs, for seasons, for days and years. All creatures that live in the ocean, all the birds of the sky, the winged creatures of the sky were created on the fifth day. And then on the sixth day, the culmination of creation was his forming of man. Look at Genesis 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, man was different from all other created creatures from the very beginning, for mankind was made in the image of God. And man was made to be a reflection of God. And that separated him from all the animals. Man is rational. By that, we mean that he can think concretely and abstractly. He can contemplate not only logic, but also beauty and in even ideas that are only imaginary. They do not and cannot exist in the real world, but they can exist in his mind. Man is also emotional. He can feel psychically things such as love and hate or compassion and anger, peace or anxiety, joy or depression. He's emotional. And finally, man is volitional. That means he can use his ability to think, his mind, and his emotions and make decisions based on those. Animals are controlled by instinct and training. Man can make decisions contrary to what might otherwise be thought of as instinct or training. In fact, he can even change his mind mid-course, can't he? As more information comes in, it changes his mind and he goes a different way. Or he feels differently about it and he changes his mind. Makes a different decision, goes a different direction. Man was also created to reflect God and his moral attributes, That would include things such as holiness and righteousness and love and goodness and kindness, justice, all these moral characteristics that God has. So while we may have bodies that are similar to animals, man is much more than an animal because all of these qualities give man personhood, something animals do not have. Now, as a quick footnote here, notice that in verse 26, the plural nature of our singular God. It's brought out by the plural pronouns in that verse. It says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Who's God talking to? Well, it's God the Father talking to God the Son, talking to God the Holy Spirit. We have a triune Godhead who is singular And all are involved in the creation of man. Next, we notice the purpose that God has in creating man. Notice Genesis 1.26. God wanted man to, quote, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then verses 28 through 30, he adds the following. And God blessed them, and God said to them, 
be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, Behold, I have given to you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Now, this is often referred to as the dominion mandate and as a very crucial point that is overlooked. But marriage is also founded with this in view. God gave man a very practical purpose on the earth, and that was to bring it, to subdue it and bring it in submission. Subdue from kabash is to bring into subjection. The theological word book of the Old Testament describes this word this way in this verse. Genesis 1.28 implies that creation will not do man's bidding gladly or easily and that man must now bring creation into submission by main strength. It, referring to creation, is not to rule man. All right? Man rules creation, not creation ruling man. To rule, uh, reda, is to have dominion over. It is having authority and taking action with that authority. So God has entrusted to man the authority to bring creation into order and to direct it. All right? That's his purpose here. Now, even before the fall into sin, it will take work to put creation into order and to get the animals to do man's bidding. That work became infinitely more difficult after the fall when sin cursed creation. Now, those who advocate the idea that humans and animals are somehow equal with one another are in defiance of God's statements concerning man. And God will hold man responsible for that. God restricts man from being cruel, from needless destruction, but otherwise God has given us a free hand to manipulate our environment, put plants wherever we want to put them, uh, and to subjugate the animals to ourselves. So it's okay for you to have a pet and train the pet. You can even train the pet to do tricks for your own pleasure. You can put plants where you want in your yard. If you don't like the maple tree where it is, cut it down and plant it another one someplace else. If you want to grow a garden, you can grow whatever you would like to eat. Not have to risk with, I just wonder what comes up and that's what I get to eat. Okay? Some of those things you don't really want to eat. You want to plant, okay? You are free to do that. You're even free to bring plants into your home. Why? Because you like the flowers on them, and that's perfectly good. Right? Some of you like houseplants, right? No? A few, a few people like houseplants, all right? You are free to do that. But that also lays a foundation for the family. Children extend dominion. Notice verse 28, that God's command to the man and the woman to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth leads directly to the dominion mandate. Children are the means by which that mandate gets extended over the earth. One couple could not subdue and rule over the whole earth. They would have to have children and then more descendants who would go out to other places and then subject creation 
and the animals to man. Now, interesting here, then, is that children, then, are not for your pleasure. They're not for your happiness. They're not for your self-fulfillment. And, in fact, we would have to say that children were not even originally intended to keep the species going. This was stated before the fall, before there was death. Now that there is death, we need to have children, otherwise mankind dies out. But originally, it wasn't even true then. That's pretty significant, isn't it? So the purpose of our children goes back to this mandate. We'll deal more with that when we come up to uh, children. But it basically means this. Parents have the responsibility to train their children to grow up, become responsible, and fulfill God's commands. Children have the responsibility to, leave, to grow up, become responsible, leave their parents, and fulfill God's commands. Okay? That's the way it works. Now, Genesis 1.31 tells us God's proclamation about all of this. What did he think of it? He looked over all the creation and he said, Behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Each of the previous days was good, but the completion of all of it, the culmination of it, was now very good. Now keep that in mind as we now look at several sections of Genesis 2, which is a recounting in more detail of the sixth day of creation. It summarizes certain things, but it gives us more detail what happened on that sixth day. Now Genesis 2-7, the first thing we find here is that Adam is created before Eve. That verse says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So Adam was single. He was a solitary man on the earth. And God then made the Garden of Eden, planted it, and it was the perfect environment for Adam. Genesis 2.15 then states that God placed Adam in the garden with a specific responsibility. It's carrying out this mandate, but specifically in the garden. He was to cultivate it and keep it. Cultivate, the word aboda here is the word for labor or service. The word for keep here, shamar, means to attend or to guard. It's the idea of exercising great care over something to fulfill an obligation. Now, we tend to think of work as a curse. Uh, in some of your jobs, maybe they are curses. But that's not what labor is. From the very beginning of creation, Adam was to labor in the garden. It was a blessing. And he was to give careful attention to fulfilling God's commands. Subdue it, have dominion over it. Now, this would have been a, an absolutely wonderful place to live. And yet, there was something missing. Genesis 2.18 states this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the pronouncement here is not that it was bad for man to be alone, but that it was not good. There's a significant difference between the two, a moral difference. The statement is made prior to the fall into sin, 
So it could not have been bad, for that would imply some evil or something missing that would have descended into evil. And there was nothing evil here. Even after the fall, being alone is not bad. Otherwise, the Apostle Paul and even the Lord Jesus would have lived in a bad state. How in the world could Paul then get to 1 Corinthians 7 and describe the advantages of being single if it was bad to be single? You get the point? Now, the idea of Adam being alone here also has to be qualified. Adam had all the animals, and he also had God that he could talk with. And those animals could even be taught to help Adam with the dominion mandate. He could teach him to do various tasks or things for his pleasure. He could train horses so he could ride them, train donkeys so he could carry loads on them. Uh, He could train elephants to move the heavy objects that he wasn't strong enough to move. He could get dogs and train them to fetch things for him. He could get birds and train them to sing for him. There's also things he could do with the animals. But the idea here is of being alone is directly related to something missing that left him single alone that was not good. Not that it was bad, but it was not good. Now God continues in this verse to say that he would do something to alter this not good and change Adam's state of being alone. God would make him a helper suitable for him. Helper from Ezer is someone who assists. Someone who assists. Suitable for him is from a connect, and it means that which corresponds to. That which corresponds to. It would be a creature that's going to able to assist Adam in fulfilling the mandate God had given him, and the creature also would in some way correspond to him. So more than just some living being to aid his purpose, this creature is going to complement him. It's going to be a companion for him. Genesis 19.20, we find how God creates Adam's understanding that he needs this companion. It heightens his awareness. Verse 19. And out of the garden, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. This something missing, he couldn't find among the animals. Now, in naming the animals, Adam is exerting his authority over them. In order to accomplish that, we have to conclude Adam had great intelligence and he had full language ability, and this is his very first day of existence. Okay? God created him mature. Now, Adam does not name, according to this text, the creature of the sea or the creeping things, and yet still, this is an incredible amount of work to do on his very first day of existence. Okay? And the day isn't over yet. There's still some major things that have to happen. But among all these animals, nothing is found that qualifies as this helper suitable for him. 
this one who will assist that corresponds to him. Genesis 2, 21 and 23 then records God's making this suitable helper. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, it's significant that God does not make the woman from scratch as he did from Adam. Adam, he got the dust of the ground and he formed it. The same word that you would use for a, a, a potter would take for making clay into something. Is God formed Adam out of the dust. The word translated rib here, uh, selah, is usually translated as side. But it's interesting to note that the rib is the only bone you have that will grow back as long as you don't take the, uh, the complete sheath. It actually will grow back. So Adam did not lose anything in the creation of Eve. His body would replace what had been removed, and what had been removed was then rebuilt into something that did correspond to Adam. She was indeed bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. So while God formed Yitzar, Adam from dust, he used a different word, benah, in taking this piece of Adam and rebuilding it into the woman. Adam then called her woman, and the word here is simply the feminine form for the word of man. So the correspondence is even closer than you might otherwise think, because it means female man. A woman then corresponds to and is complementary to the man. This is God's design. In Genesis 2.24, Moses now comments on this. Okay, to this point, this is what has been passed down to Moses as history. Moses adds a comment here. He wants the people of Israel, as they're preparing to go into the land, to understand God's design for marriage. So he says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now that verse is quoted by Jesus and Paul and explain the nature and purpose of marriage. Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 5, all of them quoted. But note from verse 22 that it is God that brings the woman to Adam. It is God that establishes his marriage. It is not human government. It's not human societies. God did this. Even what we do in marriage ceremonies, they... Usually the father or the bride walks her down, and then I ask a question. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? It's simply reflecting what God had done. He's the one that brought her to Adam. We're simply passing it on. But God established this, not man. In Matthew 19, uh, verses 3 through 9 deal with this whole section. Jesus answered the Pharisees' question dealing with divorce by going back to this definition in Genesis. Starting in Matthew 19, 4, we find this. Jesus said, Have you not read that he, was created, uh, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. 
So we find that God's design for marriage is one man and one woman to be joined together as one flesh for life. That's his design. Anything other than that is sin. All right? It doesn't meet the perfect mark of what God has established. Fornication and adultery are at epidemic levels in our society, and lawmakers have catered to that, those practicing those sins by removing civil penalties and giving approval. Divorce laws have been changed in all the states now to make it easy for the adulterous spouse to dissolve the marriage, the detriment of the spouse who's trying to keep the marriage together and striving to walk in righteousness. We have those in our congregation who have suffered as a result of these changes in law. Lawmakers in this state, again, as I mentioned earlier, have not only given legal protection, approval to sexual perversions such as homosexuality, but have preferred the laws, our marriage laws, to accommodate them. We can only wonder how long it will be before they want to accommodate other sexual perversions. Incest, child exploitation, and bestiality are given government approval. That may seem shocking now, but when I was a kid, the idea of homosexuality was shocking. So don't think it really can take that long. This is the descent into sin that our nation is going. Now, lawmakers may think they have the power to change the definition of marriage and with it the determination of what is good and evil, but they fool only themselves and those they lead astray because God has not changed his definition of marriage. He has not changed his declarations about what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. And every human will one day stand before the Lord God who is going to judge every person by his holy and unchanging standards. And unless that person has repented, changed their mind, turned from them, themselves and self-righteousness, and sought the forgiveness that comes with faith in Christ, they will stand condemned before God, and he will cast them into everlasting hell. Now I realize those are strong terms. So strong statements, but they're true, and they must be said as a warning to those who advocate these kinds of perversions and those who are led astray by them. Not only in the most extreme stuff, but the other stuff too, where marriage is not still what God wants it, even though the people are still one man and one woman, but their marriage isn't what God wants it to be. Don't be led astray by the perversions of a society. We go back to the word of God and look at what he says and build our lives based on that, right? That's what we're after. So don't fall for the lies. Don't fall for the delusions. They're common in society. You look for what God approves and seek after that. Now God's design for marriage then has a purpose. Notice the verse 24 begins with this phrase, for this cause. What cause? What cause? Confusion on that has resulted in all sorts of strange ideas which then turn tragically into failing marriages. And I'm not just referring to those marriages that dissolve, but any marriage that does not fulfill God's purposes for it is a failing marriage. Now, what's the cause for marriage? Well, some of the common things, people think it's happiness. A marriage is not for your happiness, 
though marriage can be, should be, one of the greatest sources of your happiness in this life. It's often referred to as the grace of life. But if you're not fulfilling God's purposes, I can guarantee you marriage will be the greatest pain you have ever suffered in this life. Marriage is not pure economic well-being, though census statistics still show a very strong correlation between marriage and wealth. In other words, if you're married, you're going to do better. The poverty rate of single-parent families is six times higher than married couple families. So yes, it has an economic benefit, but that's not the purpose of marriage. Marriage is not even for your sexual satisfaction, though it is the only God-approved relationship for it, and surveys continue to show monogamous married couples still have the greatest satisfaction. They are more satisfied than singles who fornicate and those who are having affairs, adulterers. But that's not the purpose of marriage either. The cause for marriage is so that man can fulfill the responsibilities that God has placed upon him in subduing the earth and having dominion over the animals, which in Adam's particular case included laboring and watching over the Garden of Eden. Now, with the fall of man into sin, there have been many additional commands given to us, additional responsibilities to cover all those things that would have been done naturally if we were innocent. But we're not, so God had to give us direction. Now, you can take all those laws, and there's a lot of them, but you can reduce them down to two. So Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commands, all the law and the prophets hang. Okay, everything can be reduced down to those two things. The family, the family is where that is taught. That's where it is learned. And the family begins with a man leaving his father and his mother and cleaving to his wife so that the two become one flesh. That's why it's the foundation. That is the cause. And then Paul says in Ephesians 5.32 that though it's a great mystery, he says that marriage, citing this verse, Genesis 2.24, is to be a reflection of Christ in the church. You are to glorify Christ by your marriage. So a successful family begins with a marriage that strives to fulfill God's purposes. The husband and the wife learn the role God has for them in the marriage, and they strive to fulfill those responsibilities. They then teach their children to do likewise. And that is why the proverb we began with, Proverbs 18.22, makes sense. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Together, a man and a wife help one another fulfill the responsibilities God has placed upon them, and that is good. In fact, it's very good. Now, does that mean the single person is left out? No, it doesn't. A single person can successfully serve the Lord. And again, as Paul states in 1 Corinthians 7, there are a lot of advantages to singleness. But he also points out there's some harder things. So singleness is not bad, all right? But marriage is good. What's harder for singles? 
Well, some are obvious. The area of sexual temptation is obvious. But there's also this lacking of a close and intimate friend that can love and accept and serve and help and build and teach and stimulate and encourage and forbear and even admonish, rebuke and correct as needed. It is difficult to have a relationship with someone as deep as you can have with a husband or wife. All those things I talked about, friendship and deep friendship, should be true between a husband and wife. But there's also a danger too. So don't just rush out to go get a wife, men. Be careful who you choose. Proverbs 12.4 explains an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. And what's a crown? Well, that's that showy thing that says everything. I'm really blessed, right? But it also adds this. But she who shames him is his rottenness in his bones. Choose very, very carefully. Now, just to add this, ladies, be careful whom you accept because a bad husband is just as rotten. Now, let me give you some hope here. Genesis 2.25 gives us a glimpse into what marriage was like for Adam and Eve. And really, it gives us a glimpse into what marriage should be. Even if we can't achieve it in this life, at least it says that's the goal, that's where we want to go. We should be moving in that direction. Now, the verse seems simple at first, but we're going to take it apart a little bit. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, what does that have to do with marriage? Well, because we're tainted by our sin nature, we easily miss the real point of the verse. We tend to think of naked as just not wearing any clothes, and then we conclude that, well, this is related to their lack of shame because it's before the fall and they were nude with each other, and that's what it's dealing with. No, it includes that, but there's a lot more here. The Hebrew word translated as naked here, arumim, actually means to be laid bare, exposed. It means there's no impediment blocking what is really there. It's a word play on the word crafty in Genesis 3.1, which is arum, arumem, arum. There's the word play. And the word crafty has to do with having sharp mental abilities to perceive and distinguish. Now let's play these things off each other, and what do we have? That Adam and Eve were able to be completely open and exposed with each other on every single level of life. Physically, mentally, and emotionally. Now for us, the thought of that is scary. Because most of us are walking around with this idea. If that person knew what I was really thinking, really feeling, they would reject me hands down and I would deserve the rejection. Because we're tainted with sin. Adam and Eve had complete hopefulness in all these areas. They could see each other's bodies fully exposed. They had no thoughts of exploitation, no selfish lust, um, no kind of perversion, nothing. They had no knowledge of evil, so there's no shame. They could express any thought that they had 
And there was nothing twisted. There was nothing demeaning. There was nothing ungodly in what they said. They could express their emotions without anything threatening the other person. Here's one. Adam would have understood his role and he would have understood Eve. And so he could have led her with both strength and tenderness. There would have been no hint of oppression of her by Adam. None. Eve would have understood her role. She would have happily served Adam in any capacity he desired in helping him fulfill his responsibilities to God. She would have been completely feminine and not one trace of feminism. You understand the difference between the two. Feminine is that which pertains to being female. Feminism are females who want to be men. That's the best way I can describe it. Because you look at every advocate feminists are after and they're all male qualities. They don't like being female. Eve was completely feminine, no feminism. And since there was no selfish in either one of them, they, could have, they would have neither challenged each other, they would not have manipulated each other, done nothing to try and get their own way. They weren't selfish. Neither one presented a threat to the other in any way, shape, or form. They would have lived in harmony with one another, working together to fulfill the responsibilities God had given them. Now, for us, that sounds like, wow, what a dream, right? Man, that would be so great. But we live after the fall. And sin has changed all of this for every married couple since Adam and Eve were forced to leave the garden. And we struggle with it. Sin has made marriage difficult. That blessed harmony that they had will not occur this side of heaven because our minds, our emotions are perverted by sin so that our decisions become corrupt. The shame of physical nakedness dates back to the garden as a reminder of our disobedience to God. That's why it's a shame. Our selfishness towards one another, that should cause a shame. It should cause a shame. But too often, we find some way to justify our ungodly attitudes and behavior while blaming somebody else for the sin. But there is a hope. But there's only one hope. We can move back toward the harmony and the bliss of Eden as we become true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means repenting of our trespasses and sin, placing our faith in the person and redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He then causes us by his spirit to become spiritually alive, and then we work to walk with him. It is that learning to walk with him by which we start approaching again harmony and move towards blessedness, bliss, that for us is an imaginary dream of what Adam and Eve would have had in the garden. But we can move that direction. We don't have to live in the turmoil that our society has. We can move a direction where that marriage does reflect God working between two people. It is not only better for you, but it glorifies God. That's what we need to be after. And it is done by following Christ, which means fulfilling your purposes, the responsibilities that God has given you. Doing it his way, not your way, and that way he is glorified. 
Now that is the foundation. And we'll be talking in the next several weeks about the role of the wife, the role of the husband, children, legacies, relatives. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll deal with what Proverbs says, and it has a whole lot to say about the foolishness that man has he brings into marriage and why that destroys marriage, as well as how wisdom enables man to move back toward Eden.